so great to have you here. My name's Scott Thompson. I'm one of the leaders here. If you're new here, you may not know that. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I woke up this morning and, and it was, like Matt said, it was, it was a shock to the system. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the first day of uh, daylight savings time. I don't like to lose sleep. I'd love to gain sleep, but, uh, but losing sleep isn't fun. But then I remembered as I, was, as I was getting ready for this morning and coming here in the passage that we are going to be looking at in John 18, uh, Jesus is coming before Pilate. His, his trial before Pilate is continuing from what we looked at last week. I remember through this section of Scripture that we've been viewing over these last few weeks, Jesus hasn't been asleep in two days. And so if we're tired today, it is right that we're tired. It is right that I'm tired because our Lord endured so much more. And our tiredness, I pray this morning, will help us understand more about what he went through for us. We get so much more rest than we deserve. And Christ is enduring many things on our behalf. He has been before now three different leaders Annas, Caiaphas, and now Pilate. In each one of these things that John portrays to us that's slightly different than maybe what we would see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that, G or that John brings to us a very personal encounter with Jesus and each of these leaders for a very specific purpose. We saw Annas when he was talking about Jesus as the high priest and and Annas himself being the high priest emeritus. And that here is Jesus standing before him as the true high priest who got slapped in the face. And then he was sent bound to Caiaphas, who was the ruling high priest at the time. And from there he went to Pilate. And Pilate representing unbelievers, those of us who come before him not knowing who he really is and questioning him, as we'll see today. Who are you? Really? I want to know. And so, <clears throat> as we begin to dig into the message today, we're going to see four things that I would like to bring out. Four things that I saw in the scripture that I would like to bring out to you. The first one is, in verses 33 through 35, we're going to see the interrogation of Jesus the interrogation of Pilate to Jesus about who he is, what his identity is. In verse 2, or I'm sorry, the second point that we're going to see in verses 36 and 37, Jesus responds to this truth. We see his response. How does he defend himself? And then we'll see the third thing is in verse 38, the question uh, really of the age, right? We still ask this question. Pilate asks, what is truth? And then in, again at the end of our passage in verses 38 through 40 of John 18, we see the judgment, the verdict. What is the verdict that we see? And during these four parts, so as not to get too confused for all of you who actually take notes, we are going to focus on four things. So four is the number of the day, if you haven't gotten that already. We will see the very personal nature of Jesus response to the charges against him and then we will define jesus's kingdom 
what is this kingdom that he talks about? And then we're going we're gonna to take a stab at answering Pilate's question, what is truth? And finally, we're going to discover the irony of the judgment at the end. And we will see that all, all of this is still relevant today to us. This is not something that just happened 2,000 years ago, and we can read it and forget about it. The questions that are being asked, the truths that are being brought out, are still very relevant to us here today. And we'll continue to see that Jesus is completely in charge of this whole situation. We're going to see that this is a battle of God's will versus the will of the people. And we'll get to that at the end. That might be a little confusing right now, but you will see that at the end. So the question for us today to think through as we read through and study this passage is this. Will you and I follow the populist agenda driven by a mob, or will we decide to follow the truth in Christ? Let's pray, and then we'll read our passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for each person who is here, Lord, to hear your truth, to hear your message, Lord, to hear what you have done for each one of us, as John portrays it by the power of your spirit, Lord. Help us understand who you are, who your kingdom is, what your kingdom is, how we can participate in your kingdom, Lord, and what is truth, Lord? What is truth, truth that is found in you? Help us to understand that. Lord, help us to understand the irony of the judgment that was set forth at the end of our passage. Lord, we thank you so much for today. I pray, God, that your words, these words would be your words and not my words, that you would speak to me and our hearts would be open to hear what it is that you have to say and that it would transform our lives this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So our passage this morning is at the end of chapter 18 of John. We're going to read John 33, 18, 33 through 40. Starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to them, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. But Barabbas 
to the robber. So we see right away, the pilot, as, as we had learned from Matt last week, as he went through the first part of this section, and that the pilot was out talking to the Jews, and we see here now he has come back in to talk to Jesus. And we wonder, as we look at this, how did Pilate know to ask if Jesus was a king? Because if you're familiar with the previous passage, really, there's not a whole lot that tells about what the charges are about Jesus. So did the Jews tell him? Luke, if we look at the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 23, verse 2, it tells us where Pilate got the idea that Jesus might be a king. Luke 23, 2 says this, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. You see, the Jews knew that if they brought to Pilate charges that Jesus was a false prophet, which is what they, they brought that allegation to Annas, the Pilate would just send them away and tell the Jews to deal with Jesus himself. But if the Jews could bring charges that Jesus was a threat to another, to the nation, of, to the kingdom of Rome, as a competing king to Caesar, then Jesus would be found guilty on a Roman charge and he would be put to death by a Roman decree. They would be free from Jesus' blood, or so they thought. Ironic that they would want to be found not responsible for the shedding of the blood of the Messiah who was before them, whose shed blood could save them. All the while, they were trying to protect themselves from the guilt of sinning against God by having a fellow Jew murdered by them. Instead, they were playing right into God's will to have Jesus stand trial, to be found guilty and hung on a wooden cross to them. In verse 33, Pilate, because he was given a heads up by the Jews, asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. Now, it's probable that Pilate had heard of Jesus and maybe had witnessed him around Jerusalem as he was healing people and as he taught and walked around. But Pilate didn't really have any idea who this man was that was standing before him. So he asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds as he always does, not directly, but with another question, placing the onus on Pilate instead of himself. And he responds saying, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? See, Jesus is asking this in this way because he wants to know if Pilate has some understanding of who he is. Is Pilate asking this question because he really wants to know? Or is he just repeating or parroting what someone else has told him? And he really hasn't a clue who Jesus is. And this is a very personal question that is relevant to each of us today this morning, do we know Jesus as our King, our Savior, our Lord? Have we buried this truth into our own heart so that our answer to this question belongs to us 
And we are not parroting something someone has told us to think. It is a personal relationship with Christ that we are demanded to have. A saving faith that belongs to each one of us on our own. I cannot make that decision for you. You cannot make that decision for me. This is relevant to our salvation. It's relevant. If you haven't, if you have not, and you're just parroting, or you're here because you think church attendance is what saved you, then you need to consider what Jesus is asking. And do you have this in your heart personally today? Jesus wants you to know him. He wants, because he knows you already. So then when we look at Pilate's answer back to Jesus, it really reveals his heart, which is his disdain and his hatred for the Jews. He answers back in verse 35 with a really snarky, am I a Jew? Pilate, as a Roman citizen and a governor, saw the Jews as less than himself. He being a stately Roman, the Jews being nothing but slaves. Underneath them, I would have nothing to do with them. You are dirt under my feet. History tells us that Pilate was a ruthless leader, not a nice guy. He was willing to do whatever it took to advance him in the Roman hierarchy. He was not trying to be nice. Then Pilate finishes his answer in this way. Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Again, as we see Pilate, like Annas, like Caiaphas, they are trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And of course, we know, if you are a believer, that the proper answer to Pilate's question, what have you done, is nothing. Nothing. Jesus isn't guilty of anything. He is just obeying his Father's will. He is in the process of completing his task on earth. This task that would lead him in just less than an hour, maybe an hour, to the cross. Where he would die for the sins of those who are guilty. Sinners like us. Isaiah, Sherry read, Isaiah 53, 1 through 9, as she read, we're going to look at 53, 3 through 6, tells us what God has ordained for Jesus in this section of Scripture known as the suffering servant. Starting in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's incredible. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone in his own way. And the Lord 
has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, our sins, every one of us, all of us, the iniquity of us all. So with great disdain displayed against the very interrogation he is facing, Jesus is taking all of this upon himself just as the Father wills it to be. Jesus understands grief more than we ever will. He understands sorrow. He understands rejection. And he responds to it with the most unselfish love ever displayed. We have strayed, yet Jesus, he takes our sins and iniquities on himself to be pierced and killed on a cross. So as we move to the next section, we see now that the charges, the charge against him has been set. It was brought by Pilate, brought to Pilate by the Jews. They were accusing Jesus of treason against Rome. They projected him as a rebel king to Caesar and expected Pilate to agree and sentence him to death, absolving them of all guilt. The blood of Jesus would be on Rome, it would be on Pilate. Not Israel, not the Pharisees, not the high priests, not the ruling Sanhedrin. Jesus responds in a very personal way to the charge against him. And he asks us through Pilate, do you say this yourself or are you parroting what someone else is telling you to say? Do you believe that I am a king? And then Pilate just throws it back in his face. But as we move to the next section in verses 36 through 38, Jesus answers this charge in a way that only Jesus can. Jesus explains his kingdom and his purpose on earth to Pilate, who put him on the defensive. It must have been a, something for Pilate to hear Jesus speak right in front of him, especially after he had heard that his wife had had a dream about him and was warned to have nothing to do with Jesus, as recorded in Matthew 27, 19. So in our second point is that Jesus is, con is confronting the allegations before him. In verse 36, he says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean when he says that my kingdom is not of this world? Well, I want to take us back to the book of Daniel, one of my favorite books. I know Dan's favorite book, for obvious reasons. So his name is Dan. He loves Daniel. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. But let's look at Daniel 2.44. And Daniel, in this particular passage here, in this particular verse, he is interpreting a dream from Nebuchadnezzar. And in this interpretation, he is prophesying about Jesus and his coming kingdom. He says this in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces in all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. We see in this verse that the kingdom Jesus is talking about is eternal. It is strong. In fact, it is stronger than any other kingdom that has ever existed on earth. It shall not be given to anyone else to rule. It is Jesus' kingdom 
and no one else's. Daniel, if we look again at Daniel chapter 7, we look at verses 13 through 14. In this case, Daniel himself is having a dream, and then we'll skip down to that passage to verse 27. And we're going to see in these three verses that Daniel is saying regarding Jesus' kingdom. And this is what he wrote, and this is what he saw in his, in his vision that he had. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then in 727 it says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So once again, we see from Daniel that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is a kingdom that is not of this world. It is a, king, it is a heavenly kingdom where Jesus will rule, and he will rule over all the earth, and he will be glorified over all the earth. All the people and all other kings, you and me together, and everyone else who thinks they're in charge, even, even Mr. Putin who thinks he's in charge of everything. No, bow down and obey Christ. It is an eternal kingdom. It will never perish. It is based on truth because Jesus is the truth. It is based on sacrificial love, as Jesus would soon demonstrate. It is based on the rule of a God who is just, who is holy, who is righteous, who is the author and protector of our faith, the creator of who holds all things together. John 1, 14 through 18 says this, And the world became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That was John the Baptist. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We see Jesus, his kingdom. He came to bear witness to God. He came to rule. He came full of grace and truth. Gifts that we don't deserve. So what Jesus is telling Pilate is that he truly is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is telling Pilate that he is actually ruling over Pilate and Pilate has no clue. As we saw a few weeks ago when Jesus was before Annas and was slapped, we saw him as the great high priest. And that is one of the three offices that Jesus occupies, and the other two are prophet and king. In this section of the passage, we see him in the offices of king and prophet.
prophet. He is telling Pilate that he is the king, and he is prophesying about himself and the kingdom that is here in verse 37 as a response to Pilate. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, it lives in two parts, the right now and the yet to come. Since Jesus has come, his kingdom is, exists right now. But until he comes again to fully establish it, it also lives in the not yet. We still have a hope and a future of his return when his kingdom will be set up eternally. I hope that makes sense, that his kingdom has come and will be fully established when, once again, as the Bible says, he will return. And as I was reading in verse 36, when Jesus said, everyone who is, of, who is of the truth listens to my voice, it reminds me of John 10, when Jesus portrays himself as the good shepherd. And he says that the shepherd, the, the, they listen to the voice of the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They don't listen to a stranger. They hear my voice. Those who belong to him, those who who know the good shepherd, who know the truth, listen to his voice and are led by him in him alone. They do not understand anyone else's voice. They do not follow any other than Jesus. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus is the truth. He is saying that we must know the truth. Thus, we must know Jesus. Because his voice is the one we need to listen to and obey. And obedience of Jesus and his commands is a sign of a transformed life that has been saved from death, from our sins. So where do you stand in light of what Jesus is saying about himself, his kingdom, and following the truth. Where do you stand? Is he your truth? Who is he to you? Verse 38 reveals Pilate's response. And he responds with a question that all of us have asked at one time or another. John 18, 38, first part of 38 says this, Pilate said to him, what is truth? It's ironic because the truth is standing before him, and yet, like most people, they can't see the truth standing right before them. Jesus has just said that all of those who know him and follow him eagerly want to follow the truth and have found it in him. But what is truth? What is truth? We can't look to the world for answers because it can't agree on a standard of truth. Truth in our world is agenda-driven. What suits me and my cause? What gets me to my desired outcome the fastest? Even if I have to bend the truth. I can tell a white lie, a small one. It's worth it, right? If the end brings about the means, right? One of my favorite preachers of all time is a man named Steve Lawson. Those who know me know that. I talk about him often. But he did a message on this particular passage, which, by the way, I'm just telling you, I did not listen to, so I did not cheat. This is not Steve Lawson's message. But there was a section in here that was very good that he talks about the truth. 
And he has eight things about the truth. And I want to share those briefly with you because they are poignant and they are important. And the first thing that Steve Lawson pointed out is that truth is divine. It's divine because its origin is from God. God is the one who establishes the truth. James 1.17 says this about God the Father. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is not changing. He is the Father of lights. He is the Father of truth. And as we already looked at in John 14, 6, that Jesus said he is the truth. He is the truth. And of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, the spirit of truth comes, not the spirit of relevance, the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. He will speak on his own. He will speak only, excuse me, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. The origin of our truth is our Holy Trinity. It originates from God. The second one is that truth is absolute. It is not conditional. It is not relative. The third one is the truth is objective. It is black and white. It is fact-based. It is rational, and it is not feeling-based. It's not based on me going, oh, I feel today like this. No, it is fact-based. Right now I can look outside and it's sunny. That is a fact. That is truth. Even if I told you it was cloudy, that would not be true. The truth is singular. That's the fourth thing. There is only one truth. And this truth is true for all. Christ is the truth. God is the truth. He is the author of the truth. It is singular. Truth, number five, is it's unchanging. It is what's known as immutable. Truth is true for all time throughout all eternity. The sixth one is that truth is authoritative. It demands a response. As the questions that we've been looking at today from Jesus demand a response from Pilate. They demand a response from us. We cannot ignore the truth, even if it gives us a little bit of a pain. Truth is authoritative. It has the right to rule and to judge. The seventh thing Steve Lawson points out is truth is powerful. It cuts to the quick. And again, as we see in John 14, 6, only the truth found in Jesus can save us. And the final thing in number eight is that the truth is determinative. It determines where you spend eternity. Do you ignore the truth and reject the truth in Jesus as our Lord and Savior? If so, then the truth will determine your place in hell. Place your faith in the truth, in Jesus and his truth, and truth will determine your place in heaven. It's black and white. You either believe in Christ or you don't. There is no middle ground. We must respond. Who is Jesus? Is he your king? 
Is he your high priest? Is he the great prophet? He is your Lord, is your Savior. If you can't answer yes, hang on. It's going to get more fun as we go. But think about your answer. Your answer has eternal, it has eternal consequences. The truth is found in Jesus. So the answer to Pilate's truth, a question, what is truth, is what? It's Jesus. It all boils down to that. The truth is Jesus. This brings us to the verdict, the judgment, the decision Pilate comes to regarding Jesus in the last verse and a half or so. John 18, 38b through 40. And I'll read that because it's been a while since we've read that. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And here's a very ironic thing. And this is what's fun about God's word. It's, it's just filled with irony. Barabbas' name means son of a father. While Jesus is the son of the father. And so this is the great exchange. The innocent in place of the thieving, murdering Barabbas. An insurrectionist against Rome himself. The son of a father being saved and the son of the father being sent to die. Let's keep in mind one thing when we read these verses, that Pilate is the Roman governor. And because he is the Roman governor, he has authority to just release Jesus. He says, I find no guilt in this man. He could have just released him. He could have just said, I release him into your hands. You do with him what you want. But he didn't do that. Why didn't he just let him go? Yes, the Jews would have been angry, and maybe they would have protested violently and made his life miserable. But in the end, there would be nothing that they could do. They are ravenous for Jesus' blood. They are willing to hide behind their so-called law to force Pilate to be the fall guy to kill Jesus as if they are not guilty of breaking it themselves. Thus, they would be free from all the guilt that goes along with this unjust death penalty that they thirst for. They wanted Jesus eliminated. That's the easy way to fix the problem. We'll just kill him. And then we could just go back on to our normal lives and everything will be fine. But Pilate wants the Jews to choose. So when we read John's account, it appears that Pilate is handing over an alternate choice, someone so vile, someone so evil, that the Jews couldn't possibly choose Barabbas over Jesus. Or could they? And let's not place all the blame on the Jews. It would be easy to do, and many people have done that, and it's led to a lot of anti-Semitic feelings. But if you and I 
before we exchanged our sin for the grace of Christ, would have been in that crowd, and we would have said the same thing. Because we wouldn't have known who he really was either. And so we cannot just put the blame on the Jews, all in this case, this is what John is portraying. We are all guilty. But to Pilate's surprise, the Jews, led by the Pharisees, cried out for Barabbas to be exchanged for Jesus. The one who knew no sin for the one who knew nothing but sin. Incredible. Incredible. And when we look at our own lives, what have we chosen? Do we love our sin so much that we will pursue our thirst for it instead of receiving the gift of forgiveness and the power of the very Spirit of God to destroy our sin that ravages our minds and our bodies and keeps us from God? When we read and hear sermons on these passages in the Gospels that tell the account of Jesus' arrest, his sham trial and his death on the cross, truly our hearts should be broken. Our hearts should be stirred. Our minds should think that this didn't have to be the way it is. If only we as a people would have obeyed the Lord, if only we had done what Jesus had told us to do, Jesus would not have had to go to the cross and die. We should remind ourselves that we are the ones who should be standing before Pilate. And I guarantee you that if we were, if we were, Pilate would not go out into the crowd and say, I find no guilt in this man. He would say he is guilty and the verdict is death. But as we will continually see in the next several weeks, this is how it had to be. We are sinners, and we have sinned, and God's punishment for our sin must be paid. Someone had to endure the Father's wrath, and God the Father chose to place his wrath. Our disobedient, pride-filled sin, our chasing after other gods, our lust for sinful acts, our thoughts, our selfishness, Instead of placing them on us, he put them on his Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ. We, like Barabbas, would get another chance. Now, we don't know if Barabbas ever came to know Christ as his Savior, if he understood what happened, whether he accepted that exchange as an exchange for his life. We don't know. But what we do see here is a very great theological point that we must understand. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus' death. He was substituted in place of us on the cross. His blood was shared in exchange for ours. Only he is worthy of being the perfect atonement, the perfect instrument to take the payment to satisfy God's wrath for our sin. And we should be eternally grateful for God's choice. Do you see why we should have some sorrow over Jesus' suffering death? 
Do you see why we should feel joy that God chose to give Jesus in exchange for you? The substitutionary atonement, if you will. D.L. Moody, a pastor and evangelist in the 1800s, said this, Death may be the king of terrors, but Jesus is the king of kings. Understand that Jesus does receive something in the end for this. The cross raises Jesus in glory. He is raised in glory, wearing a crown as a king, because Jesus is a king, and his kingdom will never end. His kingdom is now. His coming resurrection proves his power over death, and his ascension places him at his glorified place at his Father's right side. And Jesus intercedes for us, his people, those who he has called his own, the sheep that hears his voice. He is glorified as the good shepherd, our high priest, the greatest prophet. And his return, his return will bring his kingdom to completion, a kingdom that will never end. This was not all done for you. I want you to understand that. It was done for him. It was done for Jesus. You and I benefit from this great exchange, don't get me wrong, but only if we accept God's gift that he hands out to us in Christ. And if you say that you are a believer, how is your life different now than it was before you were called to Christ's kingdom? How has your view of Scripture changed since you became a Christian? Do you see yourself drawn more and more to learn about who Christ is? Are you drawn closer to him and further from your sin? Do you, how do you see people now? How do you view them? Do you love them, even those who are difficult? Do you grieve over those who refuse Christ? Do you pray for those who don't know him? Do you have compassion on those who mock your faith? I challenge you today, as I challenge myself as writing this, to examine yourself today and honestly answer these questions because these questions and your answers are ways that you can tell if you are truly a believer in Jesus. If you have seen transformation in your life, if there's been any change at all since you say you came to Jesus, is Jesus truly your King, your Lord, your Savior, your God? Can you say that you are a new creation, that your old is gone and the new has begun? John Calvin, the great reformer, said this, so powerful. And I'm going to end on this. I gave up all for Christ. And what have I found? Everything in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are moved by the power of your word. 
by the struggle that Jesus went through for us, by this trial, Lord, that he has to endure on our behalf. Father, I pray that each of us here this morning, in the quietness of this room, I pray, God, that each of us would examine our hearts and answer the questions that Jesus put before us. Do you say this of your own accord? Or is this something that you say because someone told you to say it? Are you our king? Are you our Lord? Are you our savior? And I pray, God, that if there is someone here this morning where the answer to that is either I don't know or no, I pray, God, that they would come to a saving faith, Lord, today, that you would stir in their heart that today is the day that they give their life to you and that they would live in eternity with you forever as forgiven sinners by your grace that only you can give. As Calvin said, Lord, I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? Everything in you. I praise you, and I thank you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. And as we come now to...